Sketches from Scripture presents After God's Own Heart, a teaching series from the book of Samuel. At the end of the book of Judges, the author writes, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel was a nation, but not a kingdom. The spiritual leaders were corrupt and aloof, and the nation wandered far from God. Thanks to the desperate prayer of a woman named Hannah, her son, the prophet Samuel, became the leader, priest, and judge of Israel, and God called him to anoint a king, one who believed, acted, and ruled after God's own heart. Will a king unify an adulterous nation and bring them back to the Lord? This is the story of the book of Samuel. Why do bad things happen to good people? This is a question that everyone asks at some point in their life. Everyone asks at some point in their walk of faith. Everyone asks this. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, those of you that have been here since the Genesis series know that one of the things that we learn in the early chapters of Genesis, before we settle in on the character of Abraham, we go story after story from just sort of every possible angle. And what we learn from the story of Genesis is, you know, plot twist, there are no good people, that every human is evil from their youth. So the very question, why do bad things happen to good people, is not really worth discussing unless you want to talk about the cross of Christ. Um, but if you're talking about just people in general, it's not even worth discussing because Scripture tells us you know, there, there are no good people. Yes, we're made in the image of God, and we, we, we are capable of good. In fact, we're capable of, of great good. We're capable of magnificent, magnanimous good. We're capable of it because we're made in the image of God. But we're also, in our human nature, we're selfish, we're prone to sin, and we have to choose between the two. And we're constantly battling what Genesis sets up as a battle between light and dark. Right from the very first sentence, Genesis lets us know that the world is a, a separating of light and dark. And every choice we make, we're choosing, are we going towards the light? Are we going towards the darkness? And so this question, why do bad things happen to good people, it 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 gets at the heart of a lot of us because many of us feel like we're trying for the most part to kind of follow the light and to, to do good things and to hold on to the good things. And even people who don't follow God um, typically are um, trying to follow some kind of morality in their life. They're trying to treat other people well. They're trying to take care of their families, things that we would consider to be good. Uh, most people are um, you know, kind enough to strangers and most a lot of people give to different things. And yet all of us have these darker sides. All of us have sin. All of us have these things that could tear our lives apart if we let it take root. Uh, Paul says that we were enemies of God, every single one of us, enemies of God, not just not pulling our fair share, not just not quite good enough, not just we need a little boost. We were enemies of God. We were fighting against him because of the 
choices we were making in our lives and the, the things that we have going on, things we're hiding, those sorts of things. And so there's a sentiment there in that question, why do bad things happen to good people, where we at least recognize that there are good things and there are bad things. Anyone who asks that question almost immediately, whether they realize it or not, acknowledge that there is a God. Um, people would ask Ravi Zacharias, is, is XYZ thing a sin? Um, whether it would be you know abortion or homosexuality or some of the typical things that Christians and non-Christians get into arguments about. They would say, you know, is this a sin? And Ravi would go right to the heart of the matter and he would say, uh, you know, they would say, is it wrong to do this? And he would say, is anything wrong? Is there anything that's wrong? Because if there is even one thing that's wrong, that means that there is a moral law. That means there's a moral law that says these things are right and these things are wrong. C.S. Lewis addresses this in Mere Christianity when he talks about the word ought. When uh, someone cuts in front of you in line, you think they ought not to have done that. Well, why ought they not have done that? What, where does that ought come from. And he talks about how cultures throughout time have had lots of different ideas about marriage and sexuality, but no culture believes that you can just marry whoever you want and take whoever you want. Uh, lots of cultures have had different ideas about violence and uh, death, but even a cannibalistic culture um, has rules about their cannibalism. Some only sort of eat their own tribe and others uh, eat people for only from outside their tribe, but they have rules. They have oughts and ought nots, even in this in this crazy uh, extreme of a situation like that. And C.S. Lewis sort of begins from the general sense of ought that we all have, believers or not, and works from there toward scripture, toward the God of scripture, rather than beginning with scripture and teaching out from it to people who don't believe the scripture anyway. It's a very ingenious book. Recommend checking it out. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. So Ravi and C.S. Lewis, they are getting at the heart of the matter. If anything is right or wrong, if anything is right or wrong, it's almost immediately a proof for the existence of God. As Ravi says, if there is a right and wrong, then there is a moral law. And if there is a moral law, then there is a moral law giver. That moral law must come from somewhere. Even in our own constitution, we talk about nature and nature is God and um, uh, the Declaration of Independence and these kinds of things. Jefferson wrote about it a lot. Jefferson had some complicated ideas about God and about scripture, but it's, it's hard to escape when you're talking about justice, when you're talking about things that ought to be done and ought not be done. It's very hard to escape that something somewhere must have given this moral law, that a moral law does exist, and therefore there is a moral law giver. And so as we go through that book of Genesis, we look and see if no one is good and there is this moral law giver, then what can be done? And that's the beauty of the book of Genesis is that we find out that the God that created the moral law also created forgiveness and allowed us to be able to reconcile with each other and with God and no longer be enemies of God. That's the gospel. That's, that's the good news that Jesus came to reconcile all things to himself. Uh, scripture that I have in God Rest You Married Gentlemen, which is my first novel, my debut novel, in the opening pages, there's a scripture from um, uh, Colossians about how Christ reconciled all things to himself through his blood uh, on the cross. 
And so when we ask this question, why do bad things happen to good people? We must understand that um, it's just a misnomer of a question, that this question is um, is not is not going to um, it's not going to get us anywhere because it's flawed from the outset. So what does this have to do with Second Samuel chapter seven? Well, we just looked in Second Samuel chapter six that David has brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and now he's made Jerusalem his home, and he has. Uh, um, established Jerusalem as the, the kingdom of the nation of Israel. David has finally taken his rightful place as first the kingdom of Judah and now kingdom of all of Israel, some politics later after Saul's death and um, so a little bit of civil war. And so now David is not only the king of Judah, but he has now brought home the Ark of the Covenant, the thing that left the symbol of God, God's seat, God's place in the heart of Israel that left in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Didn't leave. It was evicted. They were, he was thrown out. God was thrown out of the nation through war in 1 Samuel chapter 4 by the evil sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. And now here in 2 Samuel chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant has returned. And first, it was a military celebration, and they were not giving proper uh, um, respect proper reverence to the ark and to the God who sits upon it. And it resulted in the death of a man named Uzzah, who seemingly well-meaning reached out and touched the ark, which uh, as a matter of holiness is a, it's forbidden. You can't touch it. And what we see is the next time they come to bring the ark into Jerusalem, everything is done properly. It is carried by men. It's not on a cart. It is done with holiness and reverence. David is not entering as a king, but rather he is uh, naked except for the linen ephod. And he's just wearing this thin piece of linen to show that he is a servant, just like little boy Samuel wearing his little robes that his mother made him back in First uh, Samuel chapter 2, 3. We see David entering Jerusalem as a servant of the ark and rather than the ark being a trophy of David the king. It's a complete mind, mind shift. It's a complete um, turnaround in David's way of thinking. Now the series is called After God's Own Heart and we know that David is called a man after God's own heart. And what we saw as we compared Saul and David is that Saul feared everything but the Lord. David feared nothing but the Lord. David always feared the Lord. And it doesn't mean that he was afraid and terrified of him, although there is a, a an actual afraid fear that should come with being in the hands of a God who wants justice, knowing that you are his enemy. But he knows that God is a God of love, that God is a God of steadfast love, that he is patient, he's long-suffering, that he um, is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Remember, this is uh, his definition of himself to Moses, the Lord's definition of himself to Moses. And David knows this. David knows God's heart. God sees David with his heart and David sees God with his heart also. And so what we have in 2 Samuel 7 now is a, a man who has experienced 
the best life, the best uh, uh, moment in life that a human being could ever possibly experience in the universe. He is the first foundational king of the nation, of the people, of God. It is a time of, of peace. He's conquered his enemies. He's conquered the internal strife. He has established a home and he's brought the ark. God is now back in the presence of the people. It is a, a momentous occasion. It is a good time. It is a, a good life. Many, many good things. The best things that could ever happen to a human in history have happened to David. And now let's read 2 Samuel chapter 7 together. Uh, as it reboots right as I switch to it. There we go. <clears throat> this is the Lord's covenant with David. When the king had settled into his palace and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, look, I'm living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, go and do all that is in your mind for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? So now this is what you are to say to my servant, David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you, like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son when he does wrong. I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals, but my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported all these words and this entire vision to David. 
So let's stop there for just a second. Once again, you have a human being in the best possible situation that any person could be in in all of human history. And he sees that he's living in a house and God's living in a tent. And he says, that's not right. What an amazing heart David has to, to know it's not right that I live in a house and God lives in a, in a tent. God commanded the tabernacle to be built. God asked for the tent. He never asked for a house. But it's from David's heart that he wants to build a house for the Lord because he, he, he knows the Lord should, should be in a better place than me. And so what the Lord says to the prophet Nathan is, David, you want to build me a house? I got news for you. I'm going to build you a house. You think you came and got me from Kiriath Jerem? I took you out of the pasture. I made you the shepherd of these people. It's a really beautiful moment. It's a really beautiful thing that David wants to do. And it's a beautiful prophecy that Nathan brings to David. Once again, just looking at prophecy, I just want you to see that the Lord is not communicating directly with David here, but instead is coming through the voice of a prophet. And the prophecy that shows up to Nathan is not for Nathan, and it's not from Nathan. It's from the Lord, and it's for David. Nathan is just the deliverer of the message. So uh, a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, God told me I should do this, and, and maybe God did tell them that, and I don't, you have to kind of take those on a case-by-case -case basis, I guess. But especially from this point forward in scripture, what you're going to see from prophets is the Lord giving the prophet a message for someone else. And here you see the selfless act of Nathan who uh, believes in David and can see the Lord's favor. In fact, at first, Nathan says, yeah, go ahead, build a house. The Lord's with you, clearly. But that night, the Lord comes to Nathan and says, actually, I have something to say about this, Nathan. <laughs> and uh, gives him this really wonderful message. And I love the way the Lord takes David's words and David's heart and turns it right back around. This is, again, where we see that David is a man after the heart of God. And it's a beautiful storytelling thing that happens here. Any kind, anytime there's any kind of reversal like this, it's a really beautiful thing to see um, uh, the, in, in the, the, the storytelling, the literature. It's just so powerful. I love it. So Nathan brings all this to David. Dave, David, again, is in the best possible place you could be in all of human history. Right. Remember, we asked that question at the beginning. Why do bad things happen to good people? And we decided, well, actually, there, there are no good people. So it's not a really a question worth asking. We need to retool the question a little bit. OK, if there's anything close to a good person, I mean, it's got to be the person who has been made king of God's people, shepherd of God's people, hand selected by God. When, to whom, when he says to God, I want to build you a house, God says, no, I'm going to build you a house and I'm going to establish your name forever. And I'm going to establish you as a kingdom, as a, as a king forever. How could it be better? How could a person be in a higher place as a human being? And now let's see David's response to this as we continue reading 2 Samuel chapter 7. Then King David went in, sat in the Lord's presence and said, who am I, Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? What you have done so far was a little thing to you, Lord God. For you have also spoken about your servant's house in the distant future. 
And this is a revelation for mankind, Lord God. What more can David say to you? You know your servant, Lord God. Because of your word and according to your will, you have revealed all these great things to your servant. This is why you are great, Lord God. There is no one like you and there is no God beside you. As all we have heard confirms. And who is like your people, Israel? God came to one nation on earth in order to redeem a people for himself, to make a name for himself and to perform for them great and awesome acts, driving out nations and their gods before your people you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. You establish your people, Israel, to be your own people forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. Now, Lord God, fulfill the promise forever that you have made to your servant and his house. Do as you have promised so that your name will be exalted forever. When it is said, the Lord of armies is God over Israel, the house of your servant, David, will be established before you. Since you, Lord of armies, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant when you said, I will build a house for you. Therefore, your servant has found the courage to pray this prayer to you. Lord God, you are God. Your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, please bless your servant's house so that it will continue before you forever. For you, Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing, your servant's house will be blessed forever. What an amazing response. So many of us in life ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Or if we're going to be really honest about it, what we really ask is, hey, I'm a good person. Why does bad stuff keep happening to me? That's normally how we ask that question, right? When the best possible thing in the history of the universe happens to David, what does he say? Why me? Who am I that you would do anything like this for me? And what is so fantastically revelatory for the whole world, especially for me and my house. It's just a little thing to you, God. But why would you even do a little thing? Why would God even do a little good thing for someone someone insignificant like me? Can you see now how David was a man after God's own heart? And I've been using some language here that I'm now going to amend a little bit. I've said that this is the best possible thing that could happen to a human being, right? And you see uh, certainly in many ways how that is true, certainly at the time. But now after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is now a better thing that can happen to a human being. And that is to be saved by Christ to be redeemed, to be rescued, to have Christ say, oh, this one, oh, he's not an enemy. He's with me. He's not your enemy. He's with me. That is without a doubt (laughs) the best thing that could ever happen to a human being. And it's really not unlike what happens to David. Uh, If we look at um, Ephesians chapter one, if you want to turn over to Ephesians Chapter one, and we'll come back in a couple of weeks and we'll actually go through um, uh, Ephesians. And that'll take uh, maybe some time to go through, depending on how how much we decide to step through that. But 
Ephesians is a six-chapter letter to the church at Ephesus, and chapter one is really the thesis statement. So Paul writes these letters, and he has an argument that he's making to the people to whom he's speaking. So here he's writing to the church at Ephesus, a church that he was the, 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 the preacher, the pastor, the elder. He was in charge in some major way of the church at Ephesus for three years. We read that in the book of Acts. And so he's writing to a church that he knows very well. He's writing to a church that is his home church, church he planted, and a church that he grew up from just a handful of believers who had not even received the Holy Spirit yet. You can go back and read all about that in the book of Acts. And um, so he's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's got an, an argument that he's making. And chapter one is really the thesis statement. What's interesting about Ephesians chapter one is verses three through 14, which you see here beginning under the uh, pericope heading, verse three, all the way down here to verse 14 to the other pericope heading. In the Greek, that is all one sentence. That's all one sentence. Well, why is that? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, at this time, it was considered um, a sign that you had mastery of your thought, that you had mastery of, of what you were communicating. If you could go on a long sort of run on sentence and be able to sort of keep the thread going and have it all be organized very well. And it was a, sort of a rhetorical um, device to, to show I know so well what I'm talking about. I can have one sentence just go on and on and on, and it make complete and perfect sense. And, and this does. Our English will break it up into several sentences because there are many thoughts sort of contained in there. But again, we're looking at Scripture in terms of uh, sort of through the lens of literature. So we're looking at it as the Word of God, and we're looking at it that it has truth for life and that the words of salvation are contained within. But we're looking at it through the lens of literature. And so... Just like you learned in high school English class, if you're reading a five-paragraph essay, what's that first paragraph have in it? Well, it's got your, your thesis statement. And then the three paragraphs that follow are going to have your three main supporting points. And your final paragraph is going to have a conclusion. Uh, usually the thesis statement might be a question and the conclusion will be an answer to that question. Or perhaps the thesis statement is an assertion and the body is proof. And so the conclusion is a, is a restating of that assertion or perhaps the implications that that now that we know that that assertion is true. Paul's letters are the same. Every letter that he writes, there's some occasion for him to write the letter. There's a reason he's writing the letter. There's some things going on in the Ephesian church that he wants to address and that he wants to give them uh, some teaching to be thinking about and to understand. And so chapter one is his thesis statement. So verse three through 14, it's all one sentence in the original Greek. Literature-wise, the way we ought to look at that is everything contained from verses 3 to 14 is all one idea. And Paul is saying the one idea contained here in this thesis statement is what I'm going to be breaking down for the next chapters that follow. And let's look at it and let's see what his thesis statement is for the book of Ephesians, beginning here in chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, blessed is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him, before Christ. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. 
in him, that is in Christ. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the good news of your salvation, and when you believed, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Okay, a lot of stuff going on there. You hear one thing repeated over and over again, at least I hope you did. <laughs> I tried to emphasize it pretty hard, right? In Christ, in him, through Christ, in him, in him, in Christ, over and over again. It's, it's all throughout that one sentence. He uses that phrase. It's almost uh, silly how many times he uses it in that one sentence. What's he doing? He's trying to hammer home to the people listening. Here's the main point that I want you to remember. You are no longer in the world. You are in Christ. What does that mean? It means that you are an, a co-heir with Christ. You've been adopted into God's family in the same way that God selected, that pulled David as a shepherd from the fields to be a shepherd of his people. Paul is saying you have been pulled from the world to be in God's house, to be part of God's family, to, to be a co-heir with Christ. You get to share in the inheritance that Christ has. Everything that Christ gets because of who he is, we share in. Why? Because we are in Christ. We are in Christ. And so everything that he experiences, we now get to experience as well. We now get to, to have as part of our life, as part of our eternity. That's the best thing that could ever happen to a human being on planet earth. And so you see, I hope, how this is so like what happens to David in 2 Samuel 7. David says, God, I want to build you a house. And God says, I'm going to build you a house. Uh, David, you didn't bring me home to live with you. I brought you out of the field to live with me. And that is the thesis statement of, of Paul's letter in Ephesians. What he says is the good news of your salvation. This idea that, hey, you didn't go out and find God. God found you. He predestined. He, he came out and he found you and he called you and he brought you in and he saved you by making you part of his family. And so wonderful, wonderful things happen. Now, this is the thesis statement for Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. So there's a lot more that comes in the letters to follow. In fact, when you get into you know, chapters five and six, you get into rules for living. Don't do this. Instead, do this. Those kinds of things. And I can't think about how many times verses have been plucked out of Ephesians chapter five and wagged at me at the end of a finger without four chapters worth of reminding me who I am. So that's what Paul does. Paul doesn't go right into Ephesus and says, don't do this, but instead do this. What he says is, hey, don't forget who you are. You're in Christ. And what does that mean? He goes on in chapter two to say, you were once an enemy of Christ, but God came in and now, now you're not. And now you've been created for good works. He, he uh, decided in advance that you would do these things and now you're ready to go and do them. And he goes on to talk about 
uh, the great love of Christ and, and, and the, the richness of it and the depths of it and the unity that the church should have together and the way people should treat each other and be unified together. And it's only after four and a half chapters or so of reminding the church at Ephesus who they are and to whom they belong and whose family they are a part of. It's only after that does he say, so, you know, don't do this. Instead, do this. Stop doing these things. Do these things instead. Paul is exhibiting the kind of humility that I think David has in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David doesn't say to the nation of Israel, I'm the king. Now do everything that I tell you. Instead, he worships God and he is so humble and grateful that he is even allowed to be a part of it, much less uh, the front row seat. So what does this mean for us? Every single one of us has two callings. We have a general calling and we have a specific calling. What's the general calling? The general calling is the calling that all people have. It's the calling that's given to us from scripture. It's the calling to love the Lord, our God, with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And it's the calling to love our neighbor as ourself. It's the calling of the the commandments of scripture. It's the calling to, to make disciples. The general callings, all of us share these together. And as part of the family of God, as people who are in Christ, we should share in all these things together and be unified in these things. Um, these are the things that we really should be closed handed about, right? These are the things that we know. We trust scripture. We know these things. We should be close handed. We should cling to these things. And we should not be afraid of them. The second calling that we have is a specific calling, and this is what God specifically calls us to do. So God calls us all in general to be certain kinds of people, uh, but he calls you to your specific spouse and your specific children or your specific neighbors or your specific place of work. He might uh, put a passion in your heart for a specific ministry. He might uh, have you do short-term missions. He might have you support missions with your money and therefore bless you for your job so that you're able to support other people who can go and be the hands and feet when you're not able. The specific circumstances in which you find yourselves in life, that's, that's going to deal with your specific calling. Well, David had a very specific calling to be the shepherd of the people of Israel, to be the king of the nation of Israel. That was the very specific calling that the Lord had for David. Now, the Lord is not calling me to be the king of Israel, right? If I were to go to Israel and uh, show up and say, hey, I think, uh, you know, I read the Bible and I think the Lord wants me to be king. uh, No one would take me seriously. No one would agree. Right. So it's kind of a ridiculous premise at this point. Right. So the Lord is not calling me to be king of Israel, but the Lord is still calling me to do things. In fact, uh, I'm on here tonight because I think that the Lord is calling me to do this. Okay. Only a handful of people watching, only a handful of people listening to the podcast. That's okay. I do what I, I'm doing, what I think God has asked me to do. It's not being the king of the nation of Israel, but this is the thing that God has asked me to do. And I'm trying to be obedient in doing that. So that's something that I want to cling to. Those things are harder to discern because there's no scripture that says Paul Skidmore should have a podcast on Facebook on Monday nights. But uh, through everything that's gone on, through everything that's gone on the last few weeks, just in prayer about it this weekend, I firmly believe this is definitely something that I need to be 
doing, spending time on, and getting out to as many people as possible. You have the same thing. You have the general calling and you have some specific calling in your life, uh, whether it's just to your family or to, to your work, maybe it's to your home church. Maybe it's something very specific that you've been um, afraid to step out and do. I would beg you to be more like David and not like Saul. Don't be afraid of the consequences of the world. Instead, cling to scripture, cling to the Lord and uh, chase after his heart. Seek the Lord's heart and he will seek your heart in return. So with everything that's going on in the world, things are getting a little crazy. Things may get crazier before they get better. It's going to be up to Christians to remember where our first allegiance is and the things that we need to be close-handed about. I love America. So many people love America, but our first allegiance cannot be to America. We are citizens first of the kingdom of God. That has to come first. There are so many laws in America that are broken. There are so many enforcement of laws in America that are unjust. There are many great things, many just things about America. It's the best country in the world, but it always will take a very back seat to being a member of God's family and being a citizen of the kingdom of God, to be under the reign of God first. So I'm a citizen. I exercise my powers as a citizen. I love my rights as a citizen, but all of that has to come under being in Christ, being a co-heir with Christ, being in God's family first. That's the thing we must be close-handed about. We must be close-handed as everything's going on around us. If our neighborhoods are on fire, if we're scared out of our minds over what's going to happen, if, if uh, plagues and viruses and locusts and Saharan dust storms and whatever else is going to come in the month of July, whatever is coming, what we must hold on to is the word of God, is the promises of God, is the love of God. It's the heart of God. Being someone who is after the heart of God doesn't just mean that our heart is like his. It means we are pursuing his heart. It means we are chasing his heart. And anything that is holding us back, we got to get rid of it. Anything that is weighing us down, that sin that so easily entangles, as scripture says, we must let go. We must be open-handed with those things. Even things that are not sinful, if they are coming in between our commands to love our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, we must be open-handed with them. And we must first be citizens of the kingdom. We must first be children of God. So what does that mean politically? I got to be honest. I don't know. I'm still thinking about that. I'm still figuring that out. Um, what does that mean in, in this situation and that situation and, and, and this injustice and, and, and this chaos that's going on? I, I, I don't know. And I don't know that the answer for me is going to be the same as the answer for you. I can do a lot of things different in my life. I'm a single guy. I don't live in a, in a house with women and children. And there's a lot of things that I can afford to do that somebody who's protecting a family, he's got other considerations to think about. So I, I don't have any specific answers on anything. Uh, but, but what I'm saying is let's be open-handed with a lot of those things. 
but the things that we must be closed-handed about, the things that we must cling to, the things that we must pursue and chase and grab onto and never let go of are the things that save the word of God, the love of God, the heart of God. We must be a people after God's own heart. Only then will people come to know who Christ is. And only then will they come to know his word, his love, and his saving mercy. That's what we want. We don't want stability. We don't want security. It'd be great to have those things. But what we, what we, what we must want is the salvation of every soul on planet earth. Why must we want that? Because that's what God wants. That's what's in his heart. And it's what needs to be in our heart. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.